KPBS On Demand is supported by UC San Diego Art Power, welcoming the renowned Jack Quartet to San Diego for an evening of music titled Modern Medieval with works by Caroline Shaw, Morton Feldman, and more. Monday, May 6th at The Loft at UC San Diego, artpower.ucsd.edu. California leaders react to the choice of Kamala Harris for VP. The entire community and, and, and most of the uh, uh, African-American women are really excited about this announcement. I'm Maureen Kavanaugh with Mark Sauer. This is KPBS Midday Edition. Another challenge is emerging for black and brown neighborhoods, a COVID-19 testing gap. Black and Hispanic people are more likely to experience longer wait times and understaffed uh, testing sites when, when, they, when they're looking for testing. Why have there been more than a thousand evictions in California despite a pandemic eviction moratorium? And what is more exotic than a tiki oasis? It's this weekend's virtual tiki oasis. That's ahead on Midday Edition. Hi, I'm Bill Hohen. And I'm Ted Hohen. Over the past 50 years, our family has brought many world-class dealerships to Carlsbad, including Mercedes-Benz, Porsche, Audi, Honda, Acura, Jaguar, and Land Rover. That's right. This year, we're celebrating 50 years in Carlsbad. So on behalf of the entire Hohen family, we want to thank San Diego. Throughout the years, we've taken tremendous pride in meeting and even exceeding our customers' automotive needs. We value the relationships with our clients and look forward to serving you for years to come. We invite you to visit one of the Hohen Carlsbad dealerships or hohenmotors.com. Presumptive Democratic candidate Joe Biden and his running mate, Senator Kamala Harris, will make their public debut in a news conference we'll carry live on KPBS. Biden ended weeks of speculation when he announced California's first-term senator and former state attorney General Harris would join him on the 2020 ticket. A Biden-Harris ticket seemed the obvious choice to many after Joe Biden declared he'd choose a woman as his running mate. But Kamala Harris has some spots on her record around the issue of criminal justice reform and even the settlement agreement at the San Onofre shutdown that have made progressives hesitate to lend their wholehearted support. After a forceful debate performance against Joe Biden moved her to the top ranks of candidates, a lack of campaign funds forced her to drop out of the presidential race. But now Kamala Harris is back in it, making history as the first woman of color running for vice president on a major party ticket. Earlier today, we spoke with San Diego Assemblywoman Shirley Weber about Kamala Harris on the ticket. Pretty clear that an African-American woman was going to be uh, of choice. Um, there's been so much discussion in the Democratic Party lately about how black women have always been the most loyal and the most consistent voter uh, for the Democratic Party, and yet they've often been overlooked, and uh, overlooked for leadership, overlooked sometimes for appointment, and that the party could always count on, on, on black women more than any other group uh, that they could count on. So joining us now is former candidate for San Diego County District Attorney and community advocate Genevieve Jones-Wright. And Genevieve, welcome to the program. Thank you so very much for having me, Maureen. As a black woman, what does it mean to you to have the first woman of color on the presidential ticket? For me, 
It is a historic moment, of course. And personally, Kamala Harris has been an inspiration to me. I think many people know now that I took on a heavily entrenched incumbent for district attorney in San Diego. And I watched Kamala Harris as a person who went to college in San Francisco and then a person who went down her path and asking myself the question, how can I do more to advance criminal justice? Kamala Harris took on a very heavily entrenched incumbent district attorney in San Francisco and she pioneered the way. And so for me personally, I see her as a leader who has offered a blueprint for progressive district attorneys even now today. And she's just been a personal source of inspiration for me during my run and even after my run. So I am very delighted that she has been chosen as Vice President Biden's running mate. Do you see the choice of Kamala Harris as VP as as maybe a symbol of the growing political power of black women in the Democratic Party? I sure hope that it is. We're in 2020 as we celebrate 100 years of women's suffrage and we celebrate what we're calling the year of the woman, it cannot be lost on us that while women had the right to vote, black women were still disenfranchised. Black women have been the most loyal base for the Democratic Party. And this has been true time and time again, historically, and even now. So I hope that it is more than a symbol. I really do hope that this clears the way for other Black women to come into positions of leadership all across this country. We know that when Black women lead, everyone rises. We are naturally nurturers, and that's what we have been from the very beginning of our place in America. And that cannot be overlooked. And so while this is a historic moment, we look to November 3rd and hope that she will get the seat and that many others will follow behind her. And what do you expect to see from Senator Harris as the campaign continues? I expect to see her continuing to be a great leader and a pioneer. I expect to see her take on a lot of the things that have been great challenges for all of us as a country through the Trump administration. We've seen how she has confronted that administration on the Hill. We see why she is such a prominent prosecutor. She has this tenacity about her that I believe she will bring to the White House. Of course, she has extensive experience, statewide experience in all of the roles that she has played. And I do not expect for her to back down. I expect for her to continue to be a fearless advocate and just a wonderful human being who stays true to her values. I've been speaking with a former candidate for San Diego County District Attorney and community advocate, Genevieve Jones-Wright. Thank you so much for speaking with us. Thank you for having me. And Thad Kauser joins us now, Department Chair and Professor of Political Science at UC San Diego. And Thad, welcome. Happy election season, Maureen. Yeah, same to you. Has the excitement around the historic nature of naming a woman of color on a presidential ticket, has that neutralized some of the left-wing criticism of Kamala Harris? I think it has. Be, and it's also 
where we are in the election season and where we are in American politics. So Kamala Harris wasn't the pick of progressive purists. That was clear during the primary. She took some criticism for taking positions as attorney general in a, in a state that was still transitioning from a tough on crime approach to a smart on crime approach. She took a lot of flack for taking positions that weren't unabashedly liberal or pro progressive. But I think if you're looking ahead towards a general election, towards convincing moderate voters and towards uh, countering a tough on crime message from President Trump, I think this is a pick that made a lot of sense for Joe Biden, but also will quell a lot of that criticism because her record is, is the right sort of record to be running on for national office in a general election. What does she bring to the ticket? I think Kamala Harris brings both a very strong political resume and a record of experience in, in the nation's biggest state. She's been in office. She's been fully vetted by winning multiple statewide elections. But she also, very importantly for Joe Biden, a 78-year-old white male, she brings youth. She brings uh, a connection to the diverse coalition that is now powering the Democratic Party. Um, you know, she's, she's a woman. She's historic in many ways. And, and that combined with her de strong debate performance, uh, her aggressive uh, take in, in senatorial hearings, and many of her issue positions, that made her a, a, a very clear pick for for Joe Biden. Now, Tony Kovarek, he's chair of the San Diego County Republican Party, uh, issued a statement about the Harris pick, and he said, quote, we congratulate Joe Biden on picking Kamala Harris as a running mate, as she brings zero substance and lots of baggage, the main being the disastrous policies of California, which will go over like a lead balloon in key battleground states, unquote. So is it your take that Harris has a potential liability in battleground states? That's the big question. I think for many of the voters who Joe Biden is looking to energize and mobilize in battleground states, the California example is one they see is very positive, right? This is a progressive state that has provided a, a large safety net for for everyone that has been that has stood up to the to the president on immigration, and Senator Harris has been doing that in Washington D.C. and and one that's been much more liberal on social justice issues than governments in, in many of those battleground states. So I think for for voters in urban areas, for younger voters, for a diverse coalition, those voters. Senator Harris is, is a good pick for, and for more moderate voters, blue collar, older, whiter voters, they've got Joe Biden as, as appeal. So I think this is an attempt to be a balanced ticket for the Democrats. You know, it's traditionally the vice presidential candidate who takes on most of the negative campaigning against the other side. Is there any risk in keeping up that tradition considering Harris is a black woman? I don't know whether the vice president needs to be the pit bull attack dog, the way that Joe Biden was for Barack Obama in 2008 and 2012, because Donald Trump has fairly strong negatives and you don't need to, to make, to outline that attack on him. Voters who don't like Donald Trump already don't like the president. So I don't think there's as much of a need to prosecute the case against him. 
which was which was Kamala Harris's line during during the primary, because for many voters, he's he's already done that. So I think that will give her the latitude to be uh, more uh, a kinder, gentler, more centrist leader rather than the pit bull of the ticket. Considering the racially charged rhetoric that President Trump has already indulged in on a number of issues from immigration to Black Lives Matter protests, how do you think he'll deal with Kamala Harris on the Democratic ticket? I think what you saw uh, in, in Tony Kavark's statement is what we've been seeing in, in many of the statements. This is someone that they're attacking as, uh, you know, as a as really a socialist, a California pro- strong progressive liberal. The question is whether that attack will stick. It isn't really the political profile of Kamala Harris. She's run through the, from the center. That's been her 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 uh, her big problem in many ways in the primary. And the question is, in this 90-day or so sprint to the general election, will she have the chance to tell her story, get that out there, and fend off that attack of her as a San Francisco liberal that we're going to hear from, uh, from the Republican Party? And lastly, that the Democratic National Convention starts next week. It will be unlike any convention we've seen. What are you know about what we can expect. It's not going to be the party that it usually is. It'll be made for TV as always, but it'll be much harder to make it for TV. And the question is, are voters going to tune in? Uh, and does anyone want to spend more time in front of a screen at the end of the day? So I, I expect it to be, it'll, it'll be virtual. It won't have that, that same atmosphere. Uh, and, and it'll be a struggle for both parties with their conventions to really capture the nation's attention and ratings. I've been speaking with Thad Kauser, Department Chair and Professor of Political Science at UC San Diego. And Thad, once again, thank you very much. Thanks for having me. The headlines are familiar by now. Communities hit hardest by COVID-19 have residents who are predominantly Black and Latino. But two recent reports also show these neighborhoods in San Diego County are suffering high unemployment and a big gap in coronavirus testing compared with white neighborhoods. Joining me to break this down is KPBS investigative reporter, Claire Tregerser. Welcome back to the show, Claire. Thank you. Well, the first report was done by news organizations and looked at major metro areas. The key finding involved testing. Tell us about that. Right. So this was um, done by 538 and uh, ABC News. And what they did is they took data um, from a healthcare company called Castlight Health, which is actually the company that provides data to Google Maps that they use to, um, to show where you can get COVID-19 testing. And so they analyzed all of those testing sites and compared it with census uh, block data and found that in um, in communities of color, in many major cities, um, there's higher demand on sites for areas where people of color are more likely to live. So Black and Hispanic people are more likely to experience longer wait times and understaffed uh, testing sites when, when they when they're looking for testing. This is a function of people there being able to get a test at a private lab for a fee. Uh, what happens in poorer communities, according to the press analysis? Well, so in poorer communities, it's more likely to be more of a, a community test site, not a private test site, like you mentioned. So here in San Diego County, we have uh, testing sites set up by the county. But in those, you may have to wait maybe five to seven days even to just get an appointment um, and then maybe wait another week or even I've heard as much as 10 days 
uh, to get results, but that kind of varies. Um, you know, there are some anecdotal reports of people getting results from a county site faster than that, but it can be, you know, a couple of weeks at which point it's kind of a useless <laughs> test, you know, if you're by that time you are maybe done with your self quarantine or you've already exposed so many people if you do test positive versus a, a day or two day turnaround, which is ideally what you want. And what does the county say about the uh, disparity here and the times and the wait times and appointments and everything we're, we're discussing? Sure. So they say, you know, that when when the pandemic began, basically, they tried to put more community test sites in um, in lower income or more high minority areas. Um, and they do have a walk-up test site um, in Southeast San Diego, kind of across from Market Creek Plaza. So there you should theoretically, theoretically be able to go and get a test on the same day. You don't have to make an appointment and wait. And so they say that, you know, they've always made, a pri- made it a priority the issue is that there are private test sites that are not making it a priority by being located in more high-income areas. They live. Now, the second report was done recently by SANDAG, the San Diego County Association of Governments. What did it find? So that report looked at um, zip codes uh, for unemployment rates and then for COVID-19 infection rates. And unfortunately, the finding was that zip codes um, with have that have both the highest number of COVID-19 cases and the highest em- unemployment rates are in, again, um, more uh, lower income and high minority parts of the county, like South Bay, City Heights, um, Southeast San Diego, where more Black and Latino people live. Um, and so the five zip codes that were hit the worst by unemployment and COVID-19 are 91911 in Chula Vista, 91932 in Imperial Beach, 91950 in National City, and then 92020 and 92021, which are both in El Cajon. Um, And the report also found that Black and Latino populations are almost three times as likely to live in areas that have been impacted by COVID-19 and unemployment as white populations. And you interviewed Ray Major, chief economist at Sandeg. What was his response? Well, so he says, you know, that they they do these reports because they really want to bring attention to it. Um, you know, alert local officials that that this is what what is going on. And he w- was talking about that, you know, we need, in addition to plans for dealing with these current crises right now, we need more long-term plans because even, you know, say the the pandemic goes away in a year or something like that, the economic impacts are going to be much longer and they're going to continue to hit these same areas, um, the same areas of the county, but the worst. Uh, the Chicano Federation weighed in as well. What was their response? So they've been pushing the county for a long time to to do more, and they feel like at least now um, the county is finally kind of stepping up to that. They've given some, they've uh, done a contract with some different community organizations to set up a community resource center where people can call and say, you know, for example, maybe a contact tracer calls someone and they don't really understand or they are skeptical of, of who is this person from the government calling. So then they can call the community resource center and say, what's the deal with this? Why did this person call me? Or they can help get help 
you know, with um, asking for rent relief, utility relief, um, unemployment, all of those things. So the Nancy Maldonado from the Chicano Federation says she's glad that the county is doing this now. She wishes that they had done it earlier. Yes, well, it's a fascinating thing, and I'm sure we'll be doing a lot more reporting on this as we go along. I've been speaking with KPBS investigative reporter Claire Tregesser. Thanks, Claire. Thank you. Hi, I'm Bill Hohen. And I'm Ted Hohen. Over the past 50 years, our family has brought many world-class dealerships to Carlsbad, including Mercedes-Benz, Porsche, Audi, Honda, Acura, Jaguar, and Land Rover. That's right. This year, we're celebrating 50 years in Carlsbad. So on behalf of the entire Hohen family, we want to thank San Diego. Throughout the years, we've taken tremendous pride in meeting and even exceeding our customers' automotive needs. We value the relationships with our clients and look forward to serving you for years to come. We invite you to visit one of the Hohen Carlsbad dealerships or hohenmotors.com. This is KPBS Midday Edition. I'm Mark Sauer with Maureen Cavanaugh. With many Californians losing their jobs in the pandemic, state leaders issued a moratorium on evicting tenants. But that order is not altogether clear. It's been enforced inconsistently in counties across the state, and some 1,600 Californians have been evicted since March as a result, including at least 99 households here in San Diego County. Joining me is Matt Levin, data and housing reporter for the news site CalMatters. Matt, welcome to Midday Edition. Thanks for having me. Well, many of us uh, following the news since COVID-19 hit believe renters who've lost jobs and income have been protected from being evicted, at least till now. But your, your story shows that's not the case. Start with the moratorium. It reveals this directive as clear as mud. <laughs> uh, yeah, I think that's a decent characterization. So what the state moratorium did, and there were kind of multiple moratoriums, some from the uh, Governor Newsom's administration and then some from the Judicial Council, um, which is the governing body of the state court system. Um, and those essentially shut down um, eviction proceedings in cases where tenants could demonstrate a negative financial impact from, uh, from COVID, from the virus. Uh, but what wasn't addressed was all of these cases that actually had already gone through the court system and were simply waiting for sheriff's departments to decide whether to perform the eviction, to physically come and lock the tenants out. So um, we, uh, we issued public records requests for basically every sheriff's department in the state to get a handle on, okay, so just how many Californians were in that exact situation. Maybe they were late on a February payment or March rent payment, but the sheriff still came and kicked them out of their homes in the middle of a lethal pandemic. Yeah, and that's where it, uh, it does really get murky. Uh, explain how difficult it is to get clear and complete numbers on evictions across all California counties. San Diego's numbers are likely out of date, and uh, it can get confusing. Yeah, that's, that's right. So there, there really isn't any centralized data source for the, the number of evictions that happen, period, um, even in pre-pandemic times. We submitted public records requests to, to get that data, 
Um, not all uh, sheriff's departments responded in time for us to publish the story. So that number, that 1600 household number is, you know, likely a significant underestimate of the number of people who had to leave their homes since Governor Newsom declared a state of emergency on March 4th. San Diego was one of the sheriff's departments that actually got back to us relatively quickly. Um, and it did show that they had performed a significant number of evictions since March 4th. And people are yelling at each other if it's uh, if they're upset. That's that's exactly right. Yeah. So at least, you know, in most of the sheriff's departments we talked to, deputies were equipped at least later on with PPE. But in Humboldt County up there in the north coast, um, it was optional for sheriff's deputies to wear masks. And so there was a, a specific anecdote we have in the story where um, there was a tenant, um, a, a couple who was being evicted. They had friends and family members helping them move. And the two sheriff's deputies showed up without masks. Um, and it was a highly charged environment where people were yelling at each other. And you can, public health experts, that's a situation that they desperately want to avoid, right? A group of people, some of them screaming, um, and then physically being removed from the place where they're uh, instructed to shelter. So sheriff's departments from one county to the next deal with evictions differently, even city to city within a county, the rules vary, right? It's, it makes it very confusing all the way across the board. That's right. And sheriff's departments aren't especially happy about that. So in the absence of kind of a clear state directive, it was up to individual sheriff's departments as to whether to pursue these evictions. And there were obviously public health concerns um, for the counties writ large, but also for individual sheriff's deputies. So um, in Kings County in the Central Valley, um, the sheriff's department there, once Governor Newsom's shelter in place order came down, they said, you know what, we are not going to do any more evictions, period, unless it's a case of domestic violence or some other threat to public health and safety. Other sheriff's departments had a different legal interpretation of what was coming down from the state, and they decided, you know what, we are going to go ahead with these evictions, even though that involves, you know, deputies going house to house on the same day often um, in sometimes highly charged um, emotional situations where it might be difficult to observe social distancing guidelines. And you said the sheriff's departments aren't uh, keen on uh, the whole situation as it's gone along. What about advocates for both renters and landlords? So advocates for renters are especially unhappy with this. Um, although they, they've somewhat given up on trying to fix this specific loophole as their attention now turns to uh, preventing this eviction cliff for tenants that were financially impacted um, from COVID. But, you know, tenants groups had lobbied way back in March when the, uh, when the virus first hit California to have Governor Newsom or Attorney General Becerra uh, instruct sheriff's departments, just don't do any evictions whatsoever, in, except in cases of um, public health and safety emergencies. So I think from Governor Newsom's perspective, as well as the Attorney General Javier Becerra, I, I think there was some fear that if they did, you know, explicitly instruct sheriffs not to do lockouts, that they would run into some uh, legal challenges in terms of overstepping their constitutional authority even in times of a public emergency. Um, as far as landlords, 
you know, landlords kind of rightly say, hey, look, you know, we don't want to add to any type of public health threat by evicting people. But if you're forcing us to keep these tenants in our homes, we are bearing the financial cost of that. It seems like our homeless crisis figures to get even worse soon with all of this. Final question, is there any indication the moratorium will be extended or ended? Uh, Can we expect some clarity to emerge regarding late rent and evictions? So we had some news from the Judicial Council actually yesterday. They are, um, they signaled that they are going to allow eviction court to resume uh, starting September 1st. Earlier, there were fears that they might lift the moratorium on eviction cases as early as this Friday. Uh, But state lawmakers and Governor Newsom lobbied uh, the Judicial Council, in particular the state Supreme Court Chief Justice, to hold off on that. So what that means is that state lawmakers and Newsom have a few weeks here to iron out some type of legislative solution that will protect tenants from eviction and uh, compensate landlords in, in some matter. The compensating landlords part is the difficult part because the state does not have money, right? We were facing a $54 billion deficit and the federal government hasn't come up with you know, new money yet for states to use to combat COVID. So they're trying to figure out a way to deal with this in a very compressed time frame. Um, no deal has emerged yet. There's a couple proposals in the legislature, but the details have yet to be worked out. So it'll be a very, very busy couple weeks here um, for both uh, state lawmakers and Governor Newsom. Well, lots of news to follow up on on this specific, uh, very thorny issue in California. I've been speaking with reporter Matt Levin of the news site Cal Matters. Thanks very much, Matt. Thank you so much. We reached out to the San Diego County Sheriff's Department to find out if it is continuing to carry out evictions. A spokesperson said the department carried out 12 evictions in July, and they are currently looking at processing pre-COVID evictions. Tiki Oasis can't hold its in-person event, so it's hosting a full virtual weekender instead. KPBS arts reporter Beth Accomando finds out how you can escape quarantine this weekend by speaking with the event creators and coordinators, Otto and Baby Doe von Stroheim. Tiki Oasis celebrates being together and having cocktails and being outdoors. So what is it like trying to create a virtual version of this? You know, there's something fun about bringing people together. And of course, that's great to do in person. And that's a big part of what Tiki Oasis is. But as we're exploring this virtual world, we realize that you still can come back together in a variety of different ways. And so, you know, as we were thinking about the virtual event, we thought of it almost like how we plan our in-person event, which is a variety of different ways for people to connect. So there's everything from education, you can learn something new, try something new, and there's opportunities just to kind of be silly and hang out wearing your like aloha wear and caftan wear and running around and just having like your own fashion strolls in your own living room to really just, you know, being entertained. So, you know, we're presenting some of our uh, favorite bands and some of our favorite performers and just, you know, kind of Creative an experience, like an immersive experience virtually is uh, unique, but it can be done, I think. And the funny thing is um, a lot of people, more people can come. Like a lot of people can come from around the world. So people that might not have been able to make it can tune in. And so, you know, you could have more people there than, than we ever had before even. So it's interesting. 
How do you define what Tiki Oasis is and the kind of things people can find at the virtual Tiki Oasis? Well, Tiki Oasis, I mean, it still is what it's always been, even though it's online. It's a meeting place for people who are into mid-century Polynesian pop. So if you appreciate architecture and you appreciate rum and cocktails, tropical cocktails and mixology, uh, you appreciate Hawaiian shirts and aloha wear, Tiki Oasis is the place to be. You know, that's where you're going to find your tribe. And, you know, we've had a location and met at a location, but we can also meet online. So it's still the Tiki gathering place for the tribe. And when people come and they attend these meetings and they're online and they're on a Zoom, uh, they can interact with people, you know, and they can meet new people and they can chat with people and, and uh, you know, make new friends still online. Um, one of the things about Tiki Oasis is people really get decked out for this, the clothes, the hair. So in the virtual online version of this, are people, do you think people are going to be dressing up and getting their hair done? Are we going to be able to see each other um, at these events and enjoy that aspect of it? Yeah, Tiki Oasis definitely has a little bit of a see, see people, watch people, and be seen. Um, so that's a big part of it is that um, a lot of folks will just uh, start collecting aloha wear all year long with uh, the idea in mind, like what hat am I going to wear, what dress am I going to wear, what earrings am I going to wear at Tiki Oasis. And so we thought that was actually a big part of um, this event as we went virtual. So we have a couple different ways that we're doing that. We have some meetups that are happening where people can see each other. Um, and we're also doing even like our, we're doing a late night room party. Um, that's a dance party kind of idea. And, and the concept with that is that people are all going to be in a Zoom. And they'll get to see each other and see what uh, their people are wearing, what they're drinking, um, how they maybe decorated their living room. Um, so we're bringing a little bit of that to life, but maybe in even a, a broader way because uh, people get to share not just what they're wearing and what they look like, but um, maybe even like their home and, and how they decorate um, and, and how they express themselves in other ways beyond just the event. And, but the, the meetup, like the fashion, the biggest fashion meetup is going to be a outdoor parade with the Aloha Caftan Society. Yeah, right? so that's actually a virtual parade. So the idea with um, our Aloha Caftan Society is a group of men and women um, who actually wear these like uh, a caftan outfits, which are kind of like a, um, almost like a square dress in a way. Same, same as always, we're going to have our caftan parade, but instead of strutting around uh, together, um, we'll be doing it um, through a Zoom call. Um, and people can also watch that on other um, channels that we have have streaming content like Twitch or uh, Facebook so or YouTube. So we'll have a few different ways that people can connect and, and watch um, if they're not participating. But if they choose to be part of it, they can zoom in and uh, we'll uh, spotlight their different outfits and everybody can strut their stuff. So what kind of symposiums or panels or virtual things can people sign up for? What's the diversity or the, you know, kind of the breadth of things that are going to be available? On TikiOasis.com, we have listed all of our virtual events. So we are spotlighting a couple of different seminars. Um, we have uh, uh, David, Dr. Skipper Marley, who is going to do a seminar on Disney Goes Tiki. Um, he used to be a skipper for um, the Jungle Cruise in, the, in uh, Disneyland. So he has some really great stories and some insight into like 
what that, um, what it's like there. Um, we're also doing a virtual marketplace. Yeah, so our virtual marketplace has over 50 vendors. So it's going to be an opportunity to shop, 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 and support small businesses, support um, artists, and keeping, you know, tiki spirit alive. Yeah, so in our vendor marketplace, you get to talk to these people. So just, just the way you would at actual real in-person show, uh, you can walk up to them and talk to them on, in, via Zoom. Well, I want to thank you very much for talking about virtual Tiki Oasis. Thanks so much. Thanks, Beth. That was Beth Accomando speaking with Otto and Baby Doe von Stroheim. The virtual Tiki Oasis TV kicks off on Friday. You can go to tikioasis.com for more information. Hi, I'm Bill Hohen. And I'm Ted Hohen. Over the past 50 years, our family has brought many world-class dealerships to Carlsbad, including Mercedes-Benz, Porsche, Audi, Honda, Acura, Jaguar, and Land Rover. That's right. This year, we're celebrating 50 years in Carlsbad. So on behalf of the entire Hohen family, we want to thank San Diego. Throughout the years, We've taken tremendous pride in meeting and even exceeding our customers' automotive needs. We value the relationships with our clients and look forward to serving you for years to come. We invite you to visit one of the Hohen Carlsbad dealerships or hohenmotors.com.